Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Chocolates are sweet, but they don't last long. Flowers are pretty, and then they're gone. So this Mother's Day, why not give your mum the gift that keeps on giving with Ancestry DNA? Ancestry DNA is on sale now for $99, a saving of $30. Ancestry DNA won't just tell your mum where her ancestors are from, it can also pinpoint the specific regions within those countries, connecting mum to the places where her story started. Ancestry DNA lets us look back across centuries to see where her family lived and where they moved. Combined with Ancestry's massive database of official records, this can open up fascinating migration stories. Who knows? Give your mum Ancestry DNA this Mother's Day and she might even discover living relatives. I know it's possible because it happened for me. Ancestry DNA is safe, easy to use and completely private. When your mum gets the kit, she just sends back a small saliva sample using the prepaid postal box provided. In a few weeks, she'll receive an email with the links to her results. From there, your mother has control of the data and how she uses it. There could be more to your mum's story. Piece it together with Ancestry DNA, now on sale. Terms apply. This podcast is written and produced by me in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land traditionally owned by the Darug and Gundungurra people. I pay my respects to elders past and present. It's Monday the 14th of January 1946, a little after 10 o'clock on a typically steamy summer night in Cairns. This sleepy city in far north Queensland has undergone a huge transformation during the Pacific War that ended less than six months ago. But some things never change, such as the refreshment and relief from the heat and humidity that comes with cracking a few cold ones. That's what a clutch of colourful characters are doing tonight at Carol Davis's place in Grafton Street. Grafton Street's not only the main thoroughfare of Chinatown in Cairns, it's also the city's red light district. Carol, aka Edna Thomas, is a well-known prostitute who's recently shacked up with her new pimp, Canadian ship deserter Leo McLeod. Two of their drinking buddies are also on the game. Kathleen Brown, a.k.a. Kitty Kelly, who lives at 79 Grafton Street, is originally from Charters Towers. She's 45 and separated from her husband and their teenage son. Carol and Kathleen are well known to police, the two of them having gotten into strife separately and together over the past few years. The other prostitute present, Holly Clara Murphy, a.k.a. Vivian Mantell, 43, originally from Hay in New South Wales and also separated from her husband, seems more inclined to keep out of trouble. Holly slash Vivian doesn't appear in the newspapers and courts under either of her names. She's also a woman of means. Though Holly lives across the road at number 56 Grafton Street, she owns a house down at Crib Island in Brisbane. Rounding out tonight's little beer party is Robert William Joseph Davis. 
Originally from Coogee in Sydney, he's 44, with thin dark hair, fleshy features and eyes that are narrow behind spectacles. Bob Davis might look a little like a clerk, but his face caught on an array of sleazy charges. By around 10.25pm, Carol's so pissed she passes out. Her lover boy Pimp Leo is also three sheets to the wind. So Holly and Bob take the party across Grafton Street to Holly's place. She lets them in, turns on all the lights and they head out the back to a concrete slab beneath an awning where it'll be cooler. Bob and Holly take a chair each and crack a couple of lagers. They're soon joined by Kathleen who sits on a box. Around 10.40, as the trio drink, a man appears in the shadows at the edge of the awning. He's standing near bushes in the laneway that runs alongside the house from Grafton Street. Bob Davis gets up and steps towards the man. They have words and there's a flurry of motion. Then comes a blur in the air and a metallic clatter as something lands behind Bob and between Holly and Kathleen on the concrete slab. I'm Michael Adams, and this is part one of the three-part Forgotten Australia episode, The Cairns Grenade Murders. Parts two and three will be released next week, but if you're an Apple subscriber or Patreon supporter, you can hear the whole story right now ad-free. As a supporter or subscriber, you'll also get access to exclusive full-length bonus episodes. That includes the three-part crime epic, Revolvers and Razors, about the cold-blooded 1927 murder of a mild-mannered Sydney businessman. Patreon and Apple links are in your show notes, and you'll also see a link to my new book, Hanging Ned Kelly. Speaking of Hanging Ned Kelly, a big, big thank you to Michelle Laurie and Emily Webb of the Australian True Crime Podcast, and to Jen Kelly of the podcast In Black and White for having me on as an interview guest to talk about the book. Those episodes are available now, and I've put links in your show notes. So check out Australian True Crime and In Black and White, not just for the Hanging Ned Kelly chat, but for hundreds of other episodes about Australian true crime and Australian history. From crocodile-spotting river tours and the Coranda Skyrail, to strolling the Esplanade, marvelling at the City Aquarium, and eating at restaurants along the pier, there's plenty to do, see, and enjoy in Cairns. Grafton Street, near where it intersects with Spence Street, attracts its share of visitors too. Thanks to the foodie heaven that's the long-running Rusty's Market and the backpacker hotel and entertainment hub called Gilligan's. Running off Grafton Street, there's also a cool arcade with a record store, bookshop, vintage emporium and tattoo parlour. Prominent on Grafton Street at number 58 is the four-star Benson Hotel, which when I wandered by was advertising a pretty good-sounding mud crab luncheon hosted by Fatty Vorton. But my attention was on what's next to Benson's, that is, an empty lot that's now used as a car park. This space is not on anyone's must-see list, and there's nothing to indicate that nearly 80 years ago, this was the scene of one of Queensland's most shocking crimes. I only came across this story because, on a whim, I typed cans and murder into the National Library of Australia's Trove database of historic newspapers. What I found was surprising and there were dozens of articles that told a lot of the story you're about to hear. A lot, but not all. There was much, much more to discover in a 208-page murder file held at the Queensland State Archives. 
this cost about $200 to have digitized. And I'm able to pay for this sort of work to be done thanks to the contributions of Patreon supporters and Apple subscribers. The level of detail found in the murder file was invaluable. Official investigation reports, memos, telegrams and records of telephone messages take us behind the scenes into what the police were doing and what they were thinking. This information also allows us to track various characters in other newspaper articles and genealogical records found at Ancestry.com.au. What emerges from connecting these dots is more than a horrific tragedy and a tantalising mystery. It's also an infuriating portrait of what was, at best, police incompetence and, at worst, police corruption, starring one of Queensland's most notorious officers, Frank Bischoff. Cairns 1946 was a very different place to the tourist mecca it is today. In recent years, it had been both a ghost town and a boom town. From December 1941 to February 1942, after the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbour and Malaya, the fall of Singapore and the bombing of Darwin, Cairns was increasingly on edge about being attacked and invaded. One third to one half of the city's 15,000 residents were evacuated or fled inland or to the south. Many sold everything they had and would never return. Half the city's shops were closed and many other buildings stood empty. But not for long. From April 1942, Cairns became a base for thousands of Australian and American soldiers. Tens of thousands more were, at any one time, quartered in the Atherton Evelyn Tablelands. Catalina flying boats rumbled in and out of Kansas' Trinity Inlet on frontline missions, and their crews dossed in hotels or in tents along the Esplanade. Z-Force commandos also had their headquarters at the Mayor's House on the Hill, and they trained on the waterfront for their daring missions, including the crates raid in Singapore Harbour in September 1943. Trinity Beach was used by tens of thousands of soldiers to practice the landings and assaults it was hoped would push the Japanese out of the Pacific. During the war years, some pretty impressive VIPs turned up in Cairns. President Roosevelt's wife Eleanor dropped in, as did General Douglas MacArthur. And in January 1944, the city played host to a Hollywood hero. As a would-be Hepcat Cairns Post columnist told readers, quote, Anyhow, this past week has been buzzing, cousin, what with John Wayne and Troopers Cairns guests. Cairns really was a wartime boomtown. Nearly all those buildings that had been emptied were occupied by the military. Roads, rails, wharves, the aerodrome and other infrastructure were upgraded as a national security priority. And measures were finally taken to eradicate malaria, which had for a long time been the curse of the district. Kansas, we know it was to some extent made by these improvements, and visitors strolling the Esplanade can read informative displays about the impact of those years. One thing the displays do not describe, however, is the wartime boom in the boom-boom industry. In Vera Bradley's 1995 book, I Didn't Know That, Cairns and Districts, Tully to Cape York, 1939-1946, Service Personnel and Civilians, she includes the recollections of a then-young worker who, on his first day in Cairns, joined a queue for what he thought was a picture show. But it turned out the men in line were waiting for their turn at one of the city's brothels, where prostitutes charged... 10 shillings per half hour. 
Demand was so great that Australian soldiers would get into these queues so they could sell their places to Americans at the princely price of a pound a pop. Prostitution was illegal, but police usually turned a blind eye. As it turned out, cans came through the war just fine. As for the feared Japanese attack, there was just one raid when an enemy plane dropped eight bombs at Mossman. A piece of shrapnel grazed the head of a two-and-a-half-year-old girl named Carmel Zullo, who was asleep in her house. As the plaque near the site reads, quote, She was the only civilian casualty inflicted by the enemy on the eastern Australian mainland throughout World War II. On the 15th and 16th of August 1945, Cairns partied hard to celebrate victory in the Pacific. Then, the hangover. And the question, what next? Australian and American soldiers would be going home, and it'd be a time of readjustment. On New Year's Day 1946, after another night on the tiles, the Cairns Post was pondering this future. Quote, The Cairns District has won fame throughout the world for its tourist attractions. They are still with us. High on our resolution list, however, should be one to see that no effort is spared to attract visitors. This can be done by giving them better facilities to see what is here, giving them better accommodation in the hotels while they are in the area, and perhaps more important still, undertaking an extensive advertising campaign to attract them. All of that lay in the future. Right now, there was day-to-day life for the city citizens, and night-to-night life for the denizens of the Demimonde. Carol Davis and Kathleen Brown appeared to have set up shop in Cairns relatively recently. As late as March of 1945, they'd been tearing it up in Townsville, with convictions for drunkenness, obscene language and drink driving. There was also Kathleen's theft of a pound and change from a man who was likely one of her customers. Arrested, she supposedly said to the cops, quote, I got it from a mug, and it served him right. Carol and Kathleen's fellow prostitute Holly Murphy had been a resident of Cairns since at least 1943, when, perhaps with a wink, she listed her occupation on her electoral form as home duties. But in late 1945, Holly had spent two months down south at her crib on Crib Island in the company of her mother. Holly had only returned to Cairns on the 3rd of January. Eleven days later, at around 10.40 on the night of Monday the 14th, she was having a beer in her backyard with Kathleen and Bob Davis when their world exploded. The blast was heard all over Cairns. Constable Ernest Jackson was near the New City Cafe around the corner in Lake Street walking towards Spence Street with four other constables when the explosion occurred. About a minute later, Constable Jackson saw a man running along the footpath in the vicinity of the Australian Comforts Fund office. This man was wearing a white-coloured shirt, dark trousers and no hat. The officer chased him, the figure running along Lake Street, going around the corner into Spence Street in the direction of the Greek Club and Heatherview Boarding House, which was on the corner of Grafton Street. Constable Jackson, however, lost sight of this man. Meeting up with Senior Sergeant Thomas Quinn, Constable Jackson then went along a lane to the rear of 56 Grafton Street. Halfway along the lane, they saw a seemingly unconscious man lying on his back. This was Bob Davis, and he was covered in blood. Further on, the police saw two women. Holly Murphy was on her right side on the edge of where the laneway met her backyard. 
She was screaming and groaning, blood all over her and everywhere. Kathleen Brown was on her back, facing the awning, her feet in the drain, similarly wounded, bloodied and in agony. Constable Jackson ran to summon help, while Senior Sergeant Quinn stayed on the scene. Two ambulances arrived quickly. Bob Davis had sustained large lacerations to his right side and was suffering severely from shock. Holly Murphy was having a hard time breathing, the ambulance bearer thinking she had fractured ribs. Kathleen Brown had severe injuries to her left arm and was also in shock. Three Chinese people, a woman, a man and a boy, were also injured. They'd been hit as shrapnel sliced through the plywood wall that partitioned their residence from Holly's backyard. About 80 yards from the scene of the blast stood a building owned by the Poulos family. The ground floor and backyard was used as a cafe and a Greek club. Upstairs was given over to the Heatherview boarding house, with rooms and a veranda sleepout. When the blast occurred, men at the rear of the darkened Greek club had been playing cards. They paused, wondered what the noise had been, but then kept on, caught up with their games and their bets. Upstairs in the Heatherview, Mrs Ellen Brackenridge, mother-in-law of one of the proprietors, heard the blast, followed by cries of help. She went out onto the balcony facing Grafton Street. Across the road, a crowd had gathered and ambulances had arrived on the scene. While Mrs Brackenridge was standing there, she'd say, one of her boarders, a wharf labourer named Billy Fitzgerald, appeared beside her. She asked him, Did you hear the bomb go off? Billy said no. Mrs Brackenridge was surprised by this and she asked again. But Billy again said no. He'd been downstairs in the club. Mrs Brackenridge wondered if he was joking. He had to have heard it. Then again, Billy had clearly been drinking, even if he didn't appear to be too drunk. The Chinese man was treated at the scene, but the other five victims were rushed by ambulance to Cairns District Hospital. Senior police arrived at 56 Grafton Street. They included Inspector J.J. Osborne, Chief of Cairns CIB, CIB Sub-Inspector Martin Elford, and Detective Senior Sergeant Albert Hurd. Detective Sergeant Hurd had a quick look at the blast damage. The concrete floor had been broken by whatever had exploded against it. There was a lot of broken glass and a lot of blood. After a quick consultation with Sub-Inspector Elford, Detective Sergeant Hurd went to the hospital. There, he saw the male medical superintendent, but this doctor wouldn't allow him to interview Bob, Kathleen or Holly. Their wounds were just too serious. The Chinese woman, Mrs. Hipwa, visiting from Cooktown, had suffered a large laceration to her left knee and minor wounds to her left arm and right ankle. Kevin Arwee, aged nine, had suffered lacerations to his right leg, right ankle and a small puncture wound to one of his buttocks. Both would survive their injuries, but both had been inside and hadn't seen anyone or anything. Detective Sergeant Hurd returned to the crime scene. While the explosion had cracked the concrete, most of the blast's fire and fury had radiated upward and outward. The awning roof was peppered with 40 or so holes. A back door was also pitted. So was the plywood wall that had partitioned the Chinese victims' quarters. Around midnight, Detective Sergeant Hurd went back to the hospital. Now, he pressed a female doctor for access to the injured trio of Caucasians. She relented. Holly and Kathleen told Detective Sergeant Hurd that the man who threw the explosive had been unknown to them. They hadn't even really gotten a good look at him. 
but Bob Davis could give a description of the man who'd attacked them and then fled along the laneway. Bob said he was between 30 and 35 and stood 5'10 to 6 feet. He was well built with fair gingerish or light brown hair that he'd brushed back. The man had been wearing a white shirt or singlet and dark trousers. Bob told Detective Sergeant Hurd the attacker had spoken to him before throwing the explosive. He'd said, quote, I only arrived here yesterday. I've got my discharge and I've got a first class ticket. The man had then shown Bob a bright blue form about 5 inches by 3 inches. Then he'd said, Nobody has any chance of getting me. He'd reached for something in the top of his trousers. Bob had thought he was going for a knife and so he'd rushed him from about 5 yards. The man threw something that missed Bob and landed between the women. Then came the blast that had left Bob, Holly and Kathleen critically injured. Bob told Detective Sergeant Hurd he did not know the man who'd attacked them. But Detective Sergeant Hurd didn't believe him. He'd write in a report, quote, From his attitude, I came to the conclusion that he was not disclosing all he knew. He expressed his intention of dealing with the offender himself. Inspector J.J. Osborne directed Sub-Inspector Elford to take charge of the case. He would, with Detective Sergeant Hurd as lead investigator. During the early hours of the 15th of January, all available police were summoned. Plainclothes Detective Constable Max Noakes and Plainclothes Constable George Mason made door-to-door inquiries. At the Heatherview boarding house, just after midnight, they saw Billy Fitzgerald. Detective Constable Noakes was acquainted with this 29-year-old man from his time at Innisfail. Not that Billy had ever been in much trouble there. The officer now asked him, Do you know anything about the bomb business, Bill? Billy replied, I don't know anything about it at all. He said he'd been downstairs in the Pulos Cafe when the explosion had occurred, so he hadn't seen anything. Detective Constable Noakes asked him, Can you give us any ideas on the thing at all? Billy said, he couldn't. By dawn's early light, Detective Sergeant Hurd and other officers made a more careful search of the crime scene. The senior officer collected evidence that confirmed what he'd suspected. Quote, I found and took possession of several fragments of metal, a grenade striker lever, striker and striker spring. Detective Sergeant Hurd summoned an army expert. Examining the fragments, the ordnance man said they were from a Mills bomb. This was the common name for the M36 fragmentation grenade, which had been used by the Australian Army for decades. The use of such a weapon, along with the attacker's supposed comments about being discharged that day, suggested a soldier. But the truth was that plenty of people had access to Mills bombs. Like pistols, rifles, machine guns and submachine guns, any number of grenades had been souvenired by soldiers and then sold or given to civilians. Mills bombs also didn't require any expertise to use. Pull the pin, throw the thing. They came with either four or seven second fuses. It wasn't possible to know which sort had been used here. Either way, the attacker would have had plenty of time to lob it and take a few steps to safety behind cover in the laneway so he wasn't caught in his own storm of shrapnel. The Cairns Post's initial report that morning, the 15th of January, was headlined, Explosion in Cairns Block, Six Persons Injured by Fragments. 
The article didn't specify the occupations of the most seriously injured women, but it didn't need to. That the blast had occurred, quote, at the rear of certain premises in Grafton Street said it all. While the city citizens were reading this shocking report over their tea and porridge, Sub-Inspector Elford and Detective Sergeant Hurd returned to the hospital. Mrs Hipwa and Kevin Arwee were certain to recover. But Bob, Holly and Kathleen were in far more serious conditions. Bob's large wounds to his back and side had been sutured and he was being treated with morphine and anti-tetanus serums. Though in critical condition, it was hoped he'd make it. Kathleen Brown had a compound fracture of the upper left arm and numerous small penetrating injuries. Holly Murphy had fractured ribs and her abdomen and lower body were also riddled with small wounds. Every bit as dangerous as the shrapnel in their bodies was the internal damage that had been done to both women by the concussion from the blast. The male medical superintendent again said the women couldn't be interviewed as they were both being prepped for surgery. After some consideration, though, he allowed the police to speak to Bob again. But detectives got nothing further from him. Hopefully, when Kathleen and Holly came out of surgery, they'd be able to remember something of use. That morning, police began making house-to-house inquiries across Cairns. They were also to check hotels and boarding houses, search ships in port and watch departing trains, rail motors, cars, trucks and planes. Special attention was to be paid to all military personnel on leave in the area, and those who'd recently been discharged and left the district. At the hospital, doctors successfully sutured several perforations in Kathleen's small intestine. She was in with a chance. But around midday, as Holly was being prepped for surgery, the doctors realised there was just no way she'd survive an operation. Holly Clara Murphy died soon afterwards. Her post-mortem revealed she'd died from a ruptured stomach, perforated bowels and lung blast that had resulted in cardiac respiratory failure. This was now a murder investigation. Police came to Cairns to assist from other parts of far north Queensland, and these included Detective Senior Sergeant Thomas Martin from Townsville and Detective Sergeant Charles Donoghue from Innisfail. The morning after Holly's death, Detective Sergeant Hurd and Detective Sergeant Martin went to Cairns Hospital and spoke with Kathleen Brown. She said definitely, definitely, that she didn't know the man who'd thrown the grenade. Problem was, Kathleen had been part of the underworld for years, and even if she had known who'd done this to her, there's a good chance she wouldn't have told the cops. If Kathleen Brown did know more then the information died with her around 5am on the 17th of January, 1946. Her post-mortem was to conclude that death had resulted from intestinal injuries. Police were now hunting a double murderer. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. 
That day, reporting Kathleen's death, newspapers in Queensland and around Australia ran Bob Davis's description of the grenade attack. Here's how he was quoted in Brisbane's Courier-Mail. We were having a friendly chat over a few bottles of lager when a man appeared from the Grafton Street laneway, flourishing a blue ticket and saying, I've just been discharged today. I'm going away first class in the morning. Suddenly the man put one hand to his belt and drew something from the top of his trouser. I thought it might be a knife. It was too small for a gun. I rushed at him from about five yards, but when I was about one yard from him, he let it go. It lobbed on the cement between the women and exploded immediately. This was what Bob had told the police, but it was also crucial insider information that had now been placed in the public domain. That day, police identified a man of interest named Alan Hales, who, as a message to Sydney's CIB stated, quote, somewhat answers description, offender, bombing outrage. Alan Hales had been convicted down south on a minor charge a few months back. Now can CIB wanted Sydney to check up on him. They did, and found that he'd been in Glebe in Sydney on the night of the grenade attack. Cairns police identified four soldiers who'd left town the previous morning by train and were due to arrive in Brisbane tomorrow. These men were followed up and were also cleared. Cairns police and their assistants interviewed all the city's prostitutes and known associates of the dead women. If anyone knew anything, they weren't talking. The police appealed for the public to come forward with any information using local radio 4CA and a Cairns Post article headlined Police Appeal for Public's Help in Bomb-Throwing Mystery Motive for Dastardly Crime Not Yet Established But what didn't make it into broadcast or into the newspapers was that some senior police privately thought they might be chasing a phantom. In a report on the same day that Kathleen Brown died, Sub-Inspector Elford wrote, quote, The injured man Davis has been interviewed at the hospital on several occasions and he maintains that the original statement made by him is correct with respect to what occurred on the night of the 14th, also as to his description of the offender. He has been interviewed by Detective Senior Sergeant Hurd and Martin and myself and we feel satisfied that he is not telling the truth. He continued, It has been concluded, having in mind the lighting conditions at the scene of the bombing, that it would be impossible for Davis to have seen the colour of the rail ticket alleged to have been flashed by the offender or the print thereon, also the colour of his hair or his complexion. So who had Bob really seen? In his report, Sub-Inspector Elford also requested Brisbane CIB look into Carol Davis's pimp, Leonard Stanley MacLeod. This Canadian, aged about 30, had arrived in Cairns in early November 1945. He'd been working as a cook aboard a Canadian merchant vessel but had jumped ship. At the request of the Maritime Company, the cops tracked him to Carol Davis's place in Grafton Street and hauled him back to the vessel. But Leonard legged it again, and this time the company had said good riddance. Since then, he'd been living with, and off, Carol Davis. He was, Sub-Inspector Elford wrote, quote, A likely suspect, although both the deceased women had stated prior to their death that he was definitely not the offender, and Davis has definitely stated likewise. Nothing was to come of the police's investigation into Leonard MacLeod, and he and Carol Davis would soon take off for Townsville. Police had warned him off the pimping game, so maybe that's why he and Carol left, or maybe they were just freaked out by what had happened. In any event, they'd both be back later. 
Following a separate line of investigation, on the 19th of January, Detective Sergeant Hurd and Detective Sergeant Martin flew down to Townsville. There, they wanted to talk to a person of interest named Joseph Gray. Having interviewed this man, they asked him to drive back up to Cairns with them. Joseph Gray was most reluctant until he was told that his expenses would be covered. On the way back, they were held up by floodwaters at Ingham. The road impassable for the moment, the detectives and their suspect hitched a ride on a goods train to Tully where a police car came to bring them to Cairns. They arrived on the 21st and they took Joseph to see Bob Davis in hospital. Bob said, nope, this was not the man. But even if Joseph Gray had been his attacker, would Bob actually have said so? Or was he following the crook's unwritten law against loose lips? Tabloid newspaper Truth delivered, as it so often did, genuine insider information wrapped inside purposefully phrased purple prose. Quote, Police believe they could name the man who hurled the bomb which killed two women in a can's house if the code of the underworld which demands silence was not preventing confirmation of information in their possession. Official opinion is that at least one man could identify the slayer if he chose to talk. Of course, police were wise to the sort of character they were dealing with in Bob Davis. Granted, he wasn't Squizzy Taylor or Chow Hayes, but the man had the kind of form that would make your skin crawl. Robert William Joseph Davis was born around 1902 and was said to be a native of the Sydney suburb of Coogee. Not a lot is known about him, but what is known isn't any good. In June 1927, he married Anne Curry in Bankstown. She was granted a divorce on the 9th of May 1935, but the marriage wasn't officially dissolved until the 17th of December that year. So that made Bob a bigamist when he married Thelma Ada Clifford at St. Joseph's Church in Townsville on the 1st of May 1935. His poor wife Thelma had already had a rough time of things. Born in 1904 in Sydney, she had at the age of 15 run away from convent school. Found sleeping in parks, she was sentenced to an industrial reformatory. At some point Thelma found herself in Bob's orbit and marrying him didn't make her life any better. In November 1936, Bob appeared in Redfern Court with a woman who was several years younger than his wife, though she was calling herself May Davis. Turned out he'd forged Thelma's signature and used his girlfriend to impersonate his wife in order to defraud the Commonwealth of £20. Released on bail pending trial, Bob did a run into Queensland. Caught and extradited to Sydney, he was sentenced to six months. In January 1939, Bob was back in the north, convicted in Brisbane of stealing 10 quid. He was ordered to make restitution and pay a £3 fine or serve three months. By April 1939, Bob was in Townsville and making Thelma's life miserable again. She'd had enough and the next month filed a complaint against him for vagrancy. Bob was arrested for that and he was also charged with living on the means of prostitution. When the case was heard in early June, Bob's rotten character was exposed in court. As the Townsville Daily Bulletin reported, Bob had been, quote, living on the earnings of his wife in a house of ill fame. Since they'd married, he'd made no attempt to support her. The report went on, quote, she had made several attempts to get away from him on account of his treatment of her, but he had always managed to locate her and follow her up. 
The woman left Sydney in August last year for Brisbane, and accompanied by another woman of the same unfortunate type, the defendant followed her there and extorted money from her by threats. She then left for Townsville, but he was successful in tracing her and she received a note from Mackay demanding money, threatening if she did not comply, he would come and do her up. Fearing a beating or worse, Thelma had sent the money. Then Bob had wanted more, and she'd sent that. Bob had next come to Townsville and was squeezing four pounds a week from her. The court heard he had convictions in Sydney for illegal gambling, selling sly grog and the false pretenses case. Then there'd been the Brisbane stealing conviction earlier that year and another theft case besides. The police prosecutor outlined all of this and said, quote, Those are hard facts and nothing else I can say will convey to you more emphatically the contempt with which he is regarded. Over the past four weeks, he has received £20 from this woman by threats. He doesn't work and has no intention of doing any work. He is just a human vulture. In what sounded like a plea bargain, Bob Davis had admitted guilt to the vagrancy charge in return for the pimping charge being dropped. In an attempt to salvage his reputation, Bob told the court he'd actually been trying to get his wife out of the prostitution game and that he hadn't been pimping her to earn his money but instead had been running a billiard saloon and bringing home 25 quid a week. The judge didn't buy Bob's BS. He called him a quote, low contemptible beast and sentenced him to six months in Townsville jail. This judgment in effect said that Bob's claims in court had been lies, perjuries, in October 1942, Thelma got a divorce from Bob, granted on the very reasonable grounds that he'd still been married when they'd wed. So this was Bob Davis. Though he now claimed to be a waterside worker, though he'd lost his ticket because of absenteeism, he was known to police as a sly grog seller, a bigamous fraudster, a thief and a perjurer, a pimp extorter and threatener of women, a bludging human vulture. A human vulture who was now the sole eyewitness to a double murder the police very much wanted to solve. But they couldn't do that unless Bob could be made to talk. Queensland's police commissioner, Cecil J. Carroll, decided that this was a case for his star man, Chief of Brisbane CIB's Homicide Squad, Detective Senior Sergeant Frank Bischoff. Standing 6'2", weighing 16 stone and nicknamed the Big Fella, Detective Senior Sergeant Bischoff had been in the Queensland Police Force since 1925. By 1946, he was referred to in the newspapers as the murder expert. In the years ahead though, he'd be known for much more than that. Detective Senior Sergeant Bischoff was on track to be Chief of the CIB and later Queensland's Police Commissioner but he'd be dogged by allegations he was deeply corrupt, mired in prostitution and gambling payoffs, and said to extract confessions, real or false, by any means necessary. Now, Detective Senior Sergeant Frank Bischoff was going to Cairns to have a word to Bob Davis. I'm Michael Adams, and you've been listening to part one of the three-part Forgotten Australia episode, The Cairns Grenade Murders. Parts 2 and 3 will be released next week, but are available now early and ad-free to Patreon supporters and Apple subscribers. Big thanks to Gary Rockcliffe, Sammy Granger, Wendy Murray, Pete Gately and Tiernan Stinson, who've recently become Patreon supporters. 
and thanks also to everyone who subscribed via Apple. I don't get access to your names, but if you want a shout out, let me know with an email to forgottenaustraliapodcast at gmail.com. Just a couple of updates. Friend of the show, Rich Williams, who specialises in tracking down unclaimed monies, worked his magic on Stanley Shashova, son of Luba Shashova, who we heard about in the recent episode, Sydney's Wildest Woman. Sadly, Rich found out that Stanley appeared to have died in the rundown Ritz nursing home in Lura around 2005. The poor guy never seemed to get a break. Rest in peace. On a happier note, friend of the show Barbara Mortimer got in touch after the Henry Lawson episode to share her family's connection to the great man. Barbara, who was of huge help in the Mysteries of Mystery Island episodes, wrote, quote, Hi Michael, my husband's grandfather grew up in Mudgee with Henry Lawson. His name was Simon Hickey, and he was a fiddle-playing, life-of-the-party kind of man. He entered New South Wales State Parliament and rose to Speaker for a short time in the 1930s. His main claim to fame was writing in the Bulletin, as did Henry Lawson. Simon set up a one-off New South Wales pension for Henry. He loved and respected him tremendously, and the pension was a face-saver so he wouldn't approach parliamentarians when he was on a bender. A true friend. My husband's mother, born 1913, remembered being taken to Sydney Hospital in 1922 with her father to say goodbye to the most important friend as being the most memorable moment of her early life. Cheers, Barbara Mortimer. P.S. The family letters from Henry Lawson were donated to the Stockman's Hall of Fame in Queensland. I really loved hearing that, so thanks to Barbara. There was one other piece of recent correspondence that I'd like to share with you. And this was from the United States Ambassador to Australia, Carolyn Kennedy. A few months ago, having heard the episode I did about the Aussie Coast Watcher who saved JFK, the US Embassy got in touch asking if I could help track down surviving Coast Watchers. I did, and incoming Ambassador Carolyn Kennedy held a function for them and their families in Canberra. On the 25th of August, she wrote, quote, Dear Mr. Adams, Thank you for sharing with my team your research on the Coast Watchers and helping us connect with Dixie Lee and his family. Thank you also for sending us the copy of the 1961 Cavalier magazine with the Reg Evans interview. Your research has helped to shine light not just on a forgotten Australia, but on a forgotten America as well. The wartime connection between our nations endures. With your help, America's debt to Australia will be remembered. As an expression of my gratitude, I've attached a replica of the coconut my father carved in the process of his rescue. I commend you for your work in retracing Australia's past for the generations to come. Sincerely, Carolyn Kennedy, Ambassador. Needless to say, I was delighted to receive the letter and the replica coconut. As we Australians say, straight to the pool room. I'm Michael Adams and you've been listening to Forgotten Australia. This podcast is written and produced by me in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land traditionally owned by the Darug and Gundungurra people. As always, thanks for listening and thanks for supporting. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.